Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Race Car on Sin 19.7 every Sunday at 3 p.m. We talk politics, current affairs, pop culture with a twist. Yes, you're listening to The Race Cart on Sin 90.7, and I am Ahmed Yusuf, your host for this afternoon show. And before we begin, we're going to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land we which we meet today, and we pay our respects to their elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began to, over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we, t- we chat politics, current affairs, popular culture, with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today, we look at inequalities, uh, quotas, the answer, investigate, investigate the, um, the petition that has happened at Bark, the Bark petition that has happened in Uluru, and we featured discussion on Indigenous community closures and its historical link. So don't forget you can get involved in all the discussion by texting on 027-767-767 or tweet us using the hashtag RaceCard. And right now, my co-hosts for this weekend show are... Tanine, Amina... And uh, we've been examining a topic every week so far, and I thought, what can we do next? And uh, I went into the city this this morning and thought I'll ask a few people what they thought about quotas, and uh, yeah, we're going to find out what they thought. So um, what do you think about quotas? Are they the answer for inequality? We'll see what they think. Every April, yeah. Is this going away from say they they're not earning their place? Is that is that a possibility? Do you think that might happen? Well, everyone should have a chance to do what they want. <laughs> well, I think it's an effort to achieve equality, like gender equality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I think it's a good effort. Um, if it, I mean, I think it's got a good cause. Do you think uh, people not earning their places? Is it taking away from like a merit-based society? Yeah, I suppose so. But maybe it's um, kind of trying to encourage more women and a female perspective in parliament. Um, so yeah, I think if it keeps things equal, because yeah, the workplace for women is difficult, and often men are chosen over women. So. So do you think there may be, say, a quota system, but an invisible quota system that preferences certain people? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think I think in the workplace in general, um, males are usually chosen over females um, for whatever reasons. But yeah, there's statistics to show that they're paid more, and yeah, I mean, 
Maybe it's not the correct method and people should earn their place in Parliament, but if a female has all the correct merits, then, yeah, go for it. Well, people's idea of what merit is is sort of... Um, it's influenced by the sort of their, the beliefs that they've sort of accumulated or formed during their life. So, for example, you know, if we were talking like 50 years ago or longer, people might say... Um, might assume that women are less capable of doing a certain job, so then they'd give a man a job on their, on their merit. Their idea of merit has been influenced by their, their context and their, their sort of upbringing. So, having, like, so I do reckon the quota system is a good thing. Having said that, probably would be more effective and fairer to spend time and money combating the things that stop people getting into those positions, like people from minorities or whatever? Um, I mean, I think that there's always this kind of preference for a certain race or a certain gender, but I think that slowly it's getting better. But, I mean, I think it's... You're right, it's invisible, and I think that people are kind of... Uh, yeah, there's a preference for, I don't know, say, white males in a workforce or in Parliament or something. Do you think uh, a quota system can maybe help in terms of making a balance and, as you said, make it more equal? Yeah, I guess so, but I, I don't really think that like a quota system should be necessary. I feel like people should just think, oh, okay, this is like right, we need to have an equal representation of people in a workforce or or something like that. It's just it should just be common sense, but obviously it's not. So if I guess if there's that system. So yes, um, I think quota systems are extremely important, but the approach towards them, like the delivery towards say, like achieving the quotas that we want, can be problematic as well, in which people from groups that are not traditionally represented within state organizations can feel tokenistic at times and feel like they're not safe and is not as tend to not be as accessible as we think of them to be whereas like we have already done this much for you so the rest is up to you when we're not accustomed to that like these are not skills that we've been prepped with these are not expectations that we have had of ourselves because traditionally we have not been in these areas and when you look at it that way the quota systems are not fulfilling their intended function. Of course, this does not mean that you need to stop looking for people within state quota. This just means that this is a minimum that you must achieve. And that was uh, some of the people's thoughts from uh, a range of different people from Melbourne and what they thought about quota systems. So, you know, there were a few interesting responses. What do you think, I mean, should we have quota systems in place in Australia? I think quota is a theoretically good step in the right direction. Ideally, we wouldn't need such a thing. Ideally, we would be valued by our merits. Um, however, our reality doesn't reflect that. Um, often, this is overshadowed by long-standing prejudices. We've got employers who've been applications based on biases. Quotas aim to remedy this phenomenon, not entirely, more like a band-aid where you need stitches. But on the flip side, the danger of quotas is that people and organizations aren't pushed to challenge their ethos and bias. 
um, instead the quota system then operates to satisfy the bare minimum of what is required. And the last thing we want is tokenism. You talk about tokenism there, so you feel like there's not enough, um, as uh, some of the people touched on, there's this idea that if there's the 10%, we should just make that 10% and not try to increase that quota system, so allow that quota system to be in place for a temporary basis and then not need it anymore because there's already um, enhanced of diversity and you already have diverse people, um, whether it be race, gender, um, sexual orientation, um, that are part of your organization. Um, yeah. People people say, um, Tanin, Australian society is equal and everyone uh, gets a fair go, as they say in Australia. Um, but uh, do you think quota systems are taking away from this idea of a merit-based society? Because a lot of people come and say, we already have a fair system. Why are you trying to tamper with things? Why are you trying to change things? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you're talking about as well about the bare minimum of what like is required for workplaces. So I guess unemployment rates in Australia, especially for Aboriginal people or just pe- people of colour in general, is really bad. And like, obviously, because of, ra- of um, racism in these workplaces. But I guess one specific, uh, specifically to, you know, ab- uh, non-Aboriginal organisations out there, they, they create this thing and it's called a RAP plan, a Reconciliation Action Plan. So what they do is they, um, the organisation will make sure they have um, an X amount of Aboriginal staff there or an X amount of Aboriginal Pacific um, positions to, and make sure that their organisation has um, cultural awareness training and stuff like that, you know, disguise themselves as being culturally safe and ha- having this diversity in these organisations when it's completely untrue and they're just doing it um, just to get money from the government when... That's so ticking boxes, really. So yeah. they're not trying to enhance uh, their organisation to create diversity. It's really for a public image. And that's what I got on the streets. A lot of people said um, people are going to just put this out there as a way for good PR, good public relations. We're, div- we're a diverse um, organisation yeah. looking for the future. Yeah, exactly. So I guess in, if I've looked in like um, a job thing, it says Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are encouraged to apply, but it doesn't mean that they're not racist or it doesn't mean that an Aboriginal person is going to get the position. But when a person that isn't um, Aboriginal sees that and they'll be like, oh, wow, so they're just going to employ the Aboriginal person or the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person when that's just not true. But I guess these organisations try to disguise themselves as culturally safe when they actually aren't. They're just ticking boxes where they can get... Um, you know, so much money from the government for having Aboriginal people employed in their organisations. Definitely, definitely. We're going to take a quick music ba- break and uh, don't forget, you can get involved in all the discussions. Um, text in on 27 767 or tweet us using the hashtag RaceCut. We're going to be playing um, a song from Sovereign tra- uh, Tracks and this is called Speak the Truth. So, yeah, speak the truth, people. Speak lies. New Zealand is having a vote at the end of the year about changing their flag. Um, yeah. Would you support the idea of Australia changing their flag? Uh, depends to what. If it was the Nazi flag, probably not. Um, I don't know. How does one choose what the flag will be? I'm all for change, but I'd like to know what it's changing to first. Yeah. 
fact, as a concept, the idea of changing a flag. Do you have any issues with the current flag? or? Um, no, but it does have tied to the monarchy. Like, if New Zealand doesn't wish to be tied to the monarchy, and if we don't wish to be tied to the monarchy, monarchy is a symbol of old times, dead times, we're trying to progress. But it's the New Zealand, but are they changing it to, like, include Maori tradition? Yeah, I don't feel particularly attached to the Australian flag, so, yeah, I think I'd be pro changing it. Yeah, or like at least the idea of there being an open debate about it. I think that's important. Um, and who knows what it would be like. It's not particularly inclusive, I think, of all of Australia necessarily. It's pretty Commonwealth-centred. Absolutely. How come? Well, get rid of the Union Jack. Um, and, I mean, I guess the argument I'm putting forward in New Zealand is that, um, and in Australia as well, is that it's a tradition and culture and those kind of things. Yes, but it also means a lot more than that. It means that you're tied to the UK and then you're not an independent sovereignty and that you're not an independent country. So it's symbolic. I don't know, honestly, I haven't really thought about it that much, but I feel if it's something people are feeling really strongly about, then it's something we should be discussing. So if there's been enough people kind of going, I don't know, talking about this kind of thing, saying that we should be changing the flag, then I think it needs to be acknowledged that there are people out there saying that this needs to be done. And I think that's been around for a while. There's always been those kind of um, people talking about that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Me personally, I don't really feel strongly about it one way or the other. But if it's important to other people, then it's something that needs to be discussed. If you had to vote to change it or keep it the same. I don't know. Have to think about it more. Sorry. Um, there's, a, there's a list of uh, flags that people oh, have created cool. and proposed. Um, do any of them jump out at you or ones you might be interested in if you had to choose one? If I had to choose one, I really like number one. I think it looks pretty cool. It's, um, just for those listening, number one's kind of a, I guess, a boomerang on the left-hand side with a star, a southern cross. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I'd like like a mixture. If you had the correct, if you had the kangaroo on top of the boomerang with the star, that'd be kind of sick. All, like, all of the above. Yeah, if we just put them all together in one big collage. Probably number three. Um, so for the listeners, number three is, is essentially the, the bottom half of the Aboriginal flag with uh, blue on top and then Southern Cross stars. What, why that one? Why did that one jump out? Well, because. It incorporates the Aborigine flag, but sort of keeps to the traditions of what they actually are, as well as the Australian flag. Um, and instead of having it at the top left corner, like we do have the Union Jack, um, um, you know, it sort of demotes that, you know, in our flag, it demotes that Britain is there, but it's not really important. And if you put the Aborigine flag up there, then it would kind of denote the same thing. Perhaps the one with the kangaroo. I think. Yeah. People would recognise it. It's got the stars that people would recognise. I think most people would know what it was. Hmm. Out of just general aesthetics, I like the kangaroo one. <laughs> um, but in terms of meaning and things like that, I guess I'd have to do my research and see what I feel most, like, most connected to. Um, but I think it would be a really like beneficial um, step to include... Um, like Indigenous Australians is a part of our flag and representing that.
This is Amir Rahman, and you're listening to The Race Card. You were just listening to Sovereign Tracks Speak the Truth. Yes, here on The Race Card, we speak the truth. Remember, you are listening to The Race Card on Sin 90.7. And uh, right now, we are going to the week that was. And uh, we're going to be talking all things the past week, and we're going to be discussing... Again, going back to our chat on inequality, and it's been it's been a big discussion this week. It started on Q and A when someone asked, "Should there be quota systems? What's next? Are we going to make quotas for black people? Quotas for gay people? Quotas for disabled people? I don't know. That's what he said. But anyway, we're going to be playing that in um, that package um, on quotas where we spoke to a few very interesting people. So stay tuned. We'll be back on the other side. But if we come together, we could. Oh, sorry, just a little bit of a mistake. That was Southern uh, Sovereign Tracks um, speak the truth. But now we're going to be playing um, our our uh, package on inequality right now. Australia might be the twelfth largest economy in the world, but inequality and concentration of wealth between Australia's highest earners and working class peoples continue to be a cause for concern. I spoke with Robert Douglas, retired academic and director at Australian 21, who says the pandering to big business has led to a progressive increase to people at the very top and fears without stricter tax reform, the gap will only widen. The people at the lower end of the scale uh, tend to miss out in in an economy that values, uh, above all, growth and the health of big business. Uh, That's that's almost... um, uh, been regular wherever you look in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. I think that we've got to have taxation reform in this country, uh, th- that there is a uh, an unreasonable emphasis on tax cuts to the rich and tax concessions for those who have very large superannuation self-managed funds. Are quota systems an answer to create equality opportunity or are they taking away from a merit-based society that rewards hard work. There's been some talk recently <clears throat> about targets for female politicians, particularly in the Liberal Party. Um, but what's next? You'll have targets for black people, targets for gay people, targets for disabled people. I don't think we need to label people like that. Um, what happened to just picking people based on merit alone rather than on gender or race or anything like that? of Australian citizens are women, and over 40% of Australians claim at least one ancestry other than British. But are quota systems a form of discrimination that affects hard-working Australians that would otherwise gain access to employment and education opportunities? Guardian columnist Van Batten spoke to us about the importance of representation of people and diverse ideas. Quotas exist in order to recognise that there's a systemic fault and an inherent prejudice in the way that our culture organises that privileges overwhelmingly white, uh, straight-acting, God-pretending, middle-class men. My experience in my industry as a woman is very different um, from people's experiences in my industry as men. If it wasn't, then it wouldn't be completely dominated by white men in a society which is not completely dominated by white men. 
the more diversity you have in the decision-making process, the better decisions consistently you'll come out with because you'll engage um, more perspectives and more alternatives. If we want to have that kind of social robustness and cultural robustness and commercial and political robustness, we have to put mechanisms in place to get the most diverse assembly in the room. Critical race theorist Yasser Morsi links the current status quo to a historical invisible quota system. A lot of uh, people have, uh, a lot of people who, who have hold positions of influence, wealth, power, access, mobility, um, has not always been because of merit. It's been because of who they are, where they've been born, and what access they had to. So the idea that society starts with equal, and what we have now is those who are calling for quota are trying to privilege one group at the expense of other. You know, it's an argument that's um, ahistorical and apolitical. Um, the point is, um, society has always privileged one group, and quotas are attempting to balance that privilege. Um, and you know, the other aspect of the argument is, in so far as much as we ignore these inequalities, they will continually perpetuate themselves in so far as much as we just leave it up to um, individuals or, if you will, chance and opportunity and wherever they may meet, we will ignore how society um, always materially, politically and so forth has always privileged one group over the other and it will just continue to be a place dominated by that group. You're listening to The Race Cut on Sin 90.7 FM. Um, and uh, that was our, our package on inequality. What do you think? Do you think quarter systems are the answer? Text in on 90 point, um, text in on 0427767767 or tweet us using the hashtag RaceGuard. <laughs> Tani just looked at me inquisitively just there for a moment. Did I forget our hashtag? No, I did not. And, Tanin, I think it's uh, your turn to to take over the mic. I'm going to sit back, relax, and let you do the talking. Yeah, so I guess, the, um, including the week that was, uh, the thing that's happened this week was that the people from Uluru had done a petition from a number of different Aboriginal groups or tribal groups from around Australia. So um, we were lucky enough to have Adam Shara, who is an anti-nuke peace and social justice activist who campaigns alongside Aboriginal communities, Australian Nuclear, Nuclear Free Alliance, and Friends of the Earth. He is the former administrator of gay marriage rights in Australia and has also campaigned for the Queensland Equal Love Marriage Equality Campaign. And Adam is currently studying a Bachelor of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Advocacy at the Charles Darwin University. What, before we play the interview, um, what, do you, what did you and Adam talk about? Oh, uh, yeah, so we're talking about um, what the petition is. So it's a petition against uh, gay marriage or same-sex marriage. So where yeah, we spoke about that and the impacts of you know, Christianity and colonialism on Aboriginal people and why this has happened, pretty much. Because I saw that um, on on Facebook actually during this during the weekend, one of my friends posted on their Facebook, and I saw a comment quite quickly by um, this 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 guy saying, "Oh, um, expletive something something. These indigenous people are um, backward," and and we I think Adam probably touched on this better, but I guess is, is there a problem with how people take this? I think thirty percent of a community. Um, actually, you know, 30 people who signed this petition in a vast, diverse community as the the message for the entire community. Yeah, so I guess we have, you know, this false idea that 
um, Aboriginal people don't support um, same-sex marriage or just the queer community. But, you know, we have all these different um, people coming into these communities, you know, when people say, oh, I've gone to this community. And so um, I think that Adam will definitely speak about it and about the person who came to the community has been influencing the Aboriginal community in Uluru. So... Yeah, can't wait to listen I, to him. I guess I'm going to stop talking and let Adam, who probably knows more about this issue than me, um, do so. Well, I think it's really important to note that Pastor Walker has not consulted fully with the Aboriginal nations that have signed up to that petition, which means that he has not gone into those communities. And the people have not voted on this issue. They do not... Um, they have not asked him to represent them on this issue. He has chosen to sign those nations up to this petition. So that is a big issue in terms of, for us as blackfellas, there's a racist premise that exists in Australia that I know you all experience. It's when one person speaks up, they are considered to be speaking for all black people. Now, as blackfellas, we have a right to speak our minds and speak our opinions, but we do not have a right to attach our nations to those opinions unless we have a mandate. So what concerns me about this is it echoes the paternalistic patterns of government, where government chooses the black leaders, they nominate them for us, they put them into the public eye, and those black leaders apparently represent us. Now, that's what Pastor Walker's doing. So many of these Aboriginal nations have come out and said they didn't sign up for this. It's individual people from those communities who belong to his movement. So when I saw this, there were a few things that came up. One is using Aboriginal culture in order to deny Aboriginal rights. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here, black queers, we will always be here. Traditionally in our cultures, sister girls and brother boys hold societal roles. So it is an expression of black culture that LGBTIQ blacks are included within our culture, within our social frameworks, and we deserve to be respected and recognised and to feel safe. So by him using the Uluru Bark Petition, a cultural artefact to discriminate against his own people, I actually think that is an abuse of culture. Yeah, and what impact has it had on you as a black queer man and also on your community and your family? Well, I am skin son to the Warramungu people from Tennant Creek. I've been representing Central Desert Mobs on environment issues for a long time with the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance. I have cultural permission to work alongside these people and to walk on their country. So I found it very interesting that these nations came out against my rights when I actually work alongside and with them. So I was furious. I was also deeply hurt. I was made homeless, age 14, for being gay. It's been a long journey back to my family and to reconnect with my community. So the Uluru Bark Petition, it acts as a blockade for black queers who are wanting to find their way home. Many of us are experiencing dispossession from our own people and our own culture due to homophobia. Pastor Walker's petition is increasing the damage of this dispossession. 
Andrew, do you want to give a bit of a background of who Paul Walker... Uh, was it Pastor, pastor Walker, Walker was? He's a pastor yes. from Central Desert. Um, he's made some outrageous claims. In 2012, New Matilda recently reported that he actually said that he is convinced homosexuals breed by molesting children. Now, he said this at an anti-marriage equality rally in 2012. Now, I just want to talk about this from a black perspective. We all know the, the, the shame that was cast on black men in the central desert during the implementation of the intervention when they used racist rhetoric and accusations about pedophilia, which were later proven to be completely false. Now, they used those accusations effectively to impose apartheid law. We're the only Western nation to impose apartheid policy on our Indigenous people, and it's happening in the NT. Pastor Walker is apparently an NT religious and Aboriginal leader. He has used the same accusation and reinvigorated the collective wound that blackfellas feel nationally and specifically Central Desert people feel about pedophilia and black people. I just think that's disgusting. And that is really evident. If you work with communities in the NT under the intervention, you see the way that shameful accusation has impacted the people and it impacts the general population's impression of black people, and it increases the race. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com that exists on this land. So I just think that's an appalling tactic by Pastor Walker. In fact, I'm calling on him to issue an apology, not only to the Aboriginal nations he claims to represent, but to all Aboriginal people, because he has offended queers communities, black queers communities, our families, our loved ones, and many of us have children. So how dare he say that we breed via molesting children. That was Adam Shara uh, talking to us right there. And um, if, if, you, if anyone felt triggered by that interview um, and, and need to, to talk to someone, feel free uh, to call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue at 1300-224636. And... Uh, that was a triggering interview. Apologies, listeners, if uh, you felt at any uh, at any time triggered by that content. And uh, we're going to be moving on to our our next uh, topic on the uh, in our segment the week that was. And this week there was a really good. We're going to be moving on topic uh, on a, on onto relationships. And there was a really interesting article on everyday feminism um, about what white people should do when in relationships with people of color. Uh, we'll post a link on uh, on our blog, not necessarily a blog, but on our on a Mixcloud page, so so you can have a look at it. But we we also talked to to Jess, who who was in a relationship with a white person, and and how she navigates through um, through her identity and race um, with with her partner. And before we do, um, Tani, what did you think of the article? Because I, I know you read it as well. 
Yeah, I think it was really good, and I think that you know it's really important for people uh, or white people that are in relationships with people of color that they do understand that um you know sometimes you're going to say the wrong thing, and then sometimes you know that that person's not going to talk to you about race because it's just, you know it's not just sometimes it's just not your place. And I think that um it really brought up some really good issues because we know that you know a lot of people are into racial um, relationships, so I think it was a really great article, and I think that. Um, if anyone is in an interracial uh, um, relationship, I think it'd be really good to read and just, um, ha- like you know, have a read, and I think you'd get some great feedback from it. Definitely. I mean, we were talking um, off air a little bit about it, and and you you were saying that you have some understanding about it. So, uh, do you do you think people should be talking more about, I guess, the power dynamics in relationships? Yeah, I think power dynamics is something that should be talked about in relationships in general on different fronts. One, in terms of gender, um, that needs to be deconstructed, um, as well as race. Um, personally, my father's Sri Lankan, my mom's from the Philippines. It's a little bit different. I come from a background of lateral violence. And by that, I mean is, you know, people from different backgrounds, people of color, yet still perpetuating racism. I think the most important thing is to remain reflective and to const- to apologize if you've ever done wrong and to, um, yeah, just con- constantly learn and reflect. And you know what? We're going to, con- we're going to learn right now about a little bit about, uh, Jess and how she navigates, how she navigates through her identity with, with her partner. Um, and yeah, this is her speaking to us. So you've been in a relationship with your partner, Lucky, um, for, I think, uh, two, three right. years? Yeah, two. nearly three years. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Three nearly years. Nearly three years. Do you mind if I do this here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I guess, um, can you elaborate on some of the things that um, you two have spoken about regarding, regarding race and how... Um, how things like is involved race particularly is involved in I guess your your relationship when I decided to tell my parents about our relationship which was quite a bit after we started like I guess going out um yeah it became a pretty big deal for them um and sometimes sometimes Lockie makes really bad jokes because he has a bad sense of humour um and and they're pretty stereotypical or somewhat racist and I just say like it's not that's not a joke like that's not humour um and then he like feels bad I guess and then doesn't do it um and apologises so uh, there's stuff that we're I guess learning together about like um First Nations politics and racial justice in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, that I guess we go through together. Um, but oh, and also like talking about travel at the end of the year, um, thinking about different ways that people might perceive me or us, um, especially because white supremacy seems to be so pervasive in so many different ways. Um, I'd have a very different experience travelling by myself than travelling with him, probably. So that's been a discussion recently. I guess, um, in terms of that culture clash, you talked about your parents. Uh, personally, I can imagine if, if I dated, like, even just dating someone that isn't, um, Somali, first and foremost, there'd be this huge culture clash. 
um, let alone um, a white person. How how did you navigate through that you together? Um, I guess it's mostly something that I had to navigate myself. Um, me talking to my parents about us was tricky. Like the first thing my mom said was, "Oh, actually, no." The first thing my dad said was, "Why couldn't you find a Chinese guy to like go out with?" Um, and I said, "Like that's not the first thing I look for, or like that I'm aware of." Um, when um, like considering who I like to hang out with, um, but yeah, I guess Lockie's been over a few times, and it's my parents are quite open with um, like trying to share um, why we do things a certain way, or like how we cook something, or um, yeah, just share, like talking openly about things. Um, but my mum has like. At the beginning of telling her and talking to her about her relationship, has expressed concerns about how difficult it can be, um, and yeah, with possible cultural pressures. But I don't really, I guess, because I'm so possibly assimilated into whiteness of Australia, um, that like there's not that much clash that's happening at the moment. Um, but I guess. There might be a different space for my parents. I guess, like when it comes to being more intimate and and, and being, um, I don't I don't know, like just not even, not even like intimate in terms of the intimate that you might perceive when someone says intimate, but just being together. And there's a lot of stereotypes about specifically um, East Asian women with um, white men and and that kind of those ideas that come about. How how do you? navigate through that and do you ever talk about that with, with Lockie? Yep, I believe the term that you might be coming towards is yellow fever. Um, a few friends and I have talked about it and I guess because um, like, I don't think Lockie's been in another serious relationship before and I haven't either um, and I guess like, I don't really feel any of that gaze myself, but I know of, like, many friends who have, um, especially, I guess, in more, like, openly social and, like, social, romantic, sexual kind of scenes or, like, social situations. Um, like, I can imagine that that would be really rife. Like, I've heard a lot about um, Tinder and about, like, people in clubs and... Yeah, the, the things that people say or, like, the ways that behaviours change when people find out, like, or when they ask very probingly, like, how, well, where are you from? And, like, I can speak this language and did you know this about this? And That was just telling us a little bit about her experiences with her with a white partner and, and dating a white person. Uh, you are listening um, on Sin 90.7 and, and we are the race card. Um, and you know we were talking off there a little bit about dating, um, dating, uh, dating interracially, and and how there's a lot of conflicts with that, and it, it fits in with the topic we we're talking about at the moment. And Tani and Amina, you were saying something about how both of you feel you potentially wouldn't be um, culturally allowed to to marry or or date a um, a, a white person. 
Um, yeah, I guess, like, I don't think it's, like, so much culturally. I guess it's just um, an expectation, I guess. So, like, when I was growing up, you know, my mom and dad said, you know, you've got to get with a black man or, like, an Aboriginal person. So I think that, you know, it's always just put on women to, um, you know, continue the race or, you know, kind of that sort of sense of responsibility. And also, you know, like, my brothers, they are both with partners that aren't Aboriginal or that aren't black. Um, their partners are white. And um, I guess, like, that's fine for them to have partners that are white. But for my sister and I, it's a bit different. We have to kind of marry into, like, our own race or, like, just black people in general. Yeah. Um, so from my experience, I don't think my family are that particularly controlling with who I date. Um, however, I do see it in you know, in the Filipino communities and Sri Lankan community especially so much, um, where women are, at, at the onset, they're already controlled more than, than men and boys from, from, you know, a younger age. And that, um, has ongoing consequences. Obviously, as you get older, it controls who you're, who is, who you associate with from the beginning and things like that. And there's also this politics and this expectation that women are the bearers of culture, that they are the vessels of, you know, their family. And usually that means to procreate and create more like brown babies or whatever other babies that they come from. <laughs> and yeah, so that's that expectation. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think, especially for women, it's like such a familiar story. It's like, especially for Aboriginal women or just people of colour in general, we're always expected to procreate all the time. Where for boys, it's different. Like, we, I see AFL players or like famous black men, um, or just people of colour or like men of, of colour in general, and they've got, you know, white partners, which is fine, but it's when a woman gets a white partner, it's completely different. Like, it, it's just a double standard. Definitely. Like, I can totally agree if I tomorrow came home with a, a white woman to home and uh, my mum would probably raise a few eyebrows at the start but later come to maybe accept that um, opposed to whether one of my six sisters would decide <laughs> to uh, uh, say, Hoya, which is mum in Somali. Uh, I've got this nice um, Adan, which is white and Somali man, that's coming home with me. They're like, um, are you sure you want to do this right now? Um, I, we can we can organise a plane trip to Somalia and, and we can change your mind, maybe. But anyway, we're going to take a really, really quick music track break. And we loved soul tracks so much at the start. We're going to play another song. We're going to play All We, we Know. What do we know? And we'll find out right now. Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know, no. What's I haven't got a clue. Don't know. Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked. Um, or, like, persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. Alright, so, no, five seconds. Five seconds, good for it. Alright, so, what does the term white privilege mean to you? Yeah. What is what? White privilege. Uh, there is not such a thing, man. Not for me. Not for you? No, man, we're all the same. That's, uh, all, we, brothers, red, we're all the same. All brothers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
What does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well, privilege for white people, I guess? Yeah, so, is this like racism kind of stuff? <laughs> what does it mean to you? Just off your head. Oh, uh, I guess, Centrelink? White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here. I mean, we're talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided, I assume. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um, wow, that's a, <clears throat> that's a pretty hard-hitting question. Um, I suppose white privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media, uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them. You're listening to the race card on Sin 90.7, and that was we all, all we know, and that was Sovereign Track. Sovereign Track is sounding really, really good. That was some Tarnin's suggestion, and uh, it's sounding really good. Maybe trying to find them on SoundCloud. They're um, Sovereign uh, Tracks, T R A X for tracks, and um, yeah, we're going to be moving on to our featured segment right now and we're going to be talking about community closures and 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 really discussing the history of it and um and Tani, you know what i'm just going to move it give it to you pass the ball you're going to catch it and you, you take it on now yeah, so I guess we're lucky enough to have Meg on the show. She's from the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, the same group as me. And I guess, you know, with war, we've been organising our rallies here in Melbourne and in Brisbane as well. So, you know, we've done like quite a few rallies here in Melbourne. But I guess Meg, um, she's been researching a lot about the homeland movement. So I really wanted to hear from her um, about, you know, how important it is for Aboriginal people to, you know, seek, Self-determination. Before we move to the um, to the interview, can you explain to our listeners uh, what is the Homelands Movement? Yeah, so um, I guess in the 60s, or well, since you know colonisation, they put um, Aboriginal people in missions, and then in the 60s, um, Aboriginal people, particularly in the Northern Territory, started to walk off the missions back to their homelands. So I guess this is kind of just like the starting point of um, the segment, and you know how important it is for Aboriginal people to live on their homelands. So it's really good that we've got Meg with us. Meg is um, very good. We spoke, I listened to this interview earlier today, and it was a, it was a big eye-opener. And I'm going to be loading it right now. And here is Meg giving some gospel truth. Uh, church groups and, and supported by, by the state. Um, Missions were were usually run by uh, church groups and, and supported by by the state, um, and it was a way of assimilating Aboriginal people into the Western model of life. So, 
you know, languages were were banned, um, cultural practices were banned, pretty much um, everything people <laughs> knew was was um, was outlawed in in these missions in 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 an attempt to assimilate them into into white society. What were some of the times when Aboriginal people did, um, you know, look for self-determination? In yeah, um, I've been doing a lot, a lot of reading lately into the the outstations movement. Um, I think it's kind of a little bit overlooked as being one of the biggest um, assertions of, of self-determination and sovereignty in Australia in the seventies. People walked off missions, um, you know, to, you know, to save their, their, their culture and they've, you know, many people walked with their possessions um, back to their homelands and and set up their, their own traditional communities in a way to preserve language and preserve culture um, and, you know, with wars, with with all the rallies that have been happening against the, the, the closures of, of the communities, um, I think it's a really relevant um, a relevant point to touch on is the, how these, these homelands actually came about. And did you want to explain kind of what a growth town is and um, where, Abri- like, where Aboriginal people, you know, maybe be forced to move to? In the Northern Territory, they defined um, 21 growth towns, and that was done under the intervention. Um, and so they're really, really targeting funding into into that community, uh, into those growth towns, like for these, you know, regional centres. Um, you know, and the funding, the funding gap between homelands and these growth centres is huge. Um, like we're talking 600 million different, you know, 600 million more being pumped into these growth centres. And, you know, the population in these growth centres is, is a lot smaller than the population of the people living on homelands. Um, um, in what ways has it um, slowly started, ha- has it come to this? Yeah. I'll give you an example. I'm not going to mention the names of the communities, but um, there's a... It's like a, it's almost like a cooperative of outstations in the Northern Territory, and and they receive homeland funding for for um, for their homelands. And I think there's about 22 homelands attached to this one one centre. Um, so last year, the Northern Territory government came in and you know was spruiking this these regional shires, you know like. Mm-hmm. You know, become a part of this shire and, and you have greater employment and all this kind of stuff. Right, and that was probably mid last year. And I was I was chatting to some of the mob out there just recently and they said, Oh, yeah, the shires fell over. There's no employment left. We're not we're not a part of this this, this outstation co op anymore, so we can't get homeland funding and now we've we've lost our jobs under this new shire and I know and I know the homeland funding for, for up there is only meant it's not meant to continue so much longer either so 
yeah, it's that it's that process of, of destabilizing Aboriginal movements. Like that that centre was set up by you know the traditional owners of that area early 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, and they've been running it, running all the services for these 22 22 outstations. And then the shire comes in, and, and or the government comes in and tries to make them break away from it. With, you know, with, mm-hmm. so it's a really um, coercive kind of hidden agenda. That was Meg from. Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance and we're going to be talking to Mariki, a member of the Aboriginal Resistance as well, um, about some of the, uh, some of the contemporary movements that are happening right now, um, regarding forced closures. Um, hello Mariki, you on the line? Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming on, uh, the show. Uh, so t- tell us how this, this, um, these homeland movements, how, how they started in the 60s and now there's a movement coming back. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I can only talk from my perspective and what's happened in Melbourne. I mean, I know I have limited um, understanding in relation to, you know, the whole scope of what's happening. And I know that there's people that have been working this field for a lot longer than I have. But, I mean, from our perspective, um, from war and particularly um, in Melbourne, is that, you know, we'd heard, I'd heard about... Um, the community closures last year and you know I think I felt pretty disheartened by that and a few other people were and um, and then after the Tony Abbott after Tony Abbott's comments saying that I can't remember the first first he said they were it was a lifestyle choice um, to live out in those communities and that people shouldn't have taxpayers shouldn't have to foot that bill so that sparked a knee-jerk reaction from you know not just Aboriginal people and not just us, it sparked a knee-jerk reaction from people all around the nation and even around the world um, that, you know, that it was completely racist to think that um, the Aboriginal people choose Aboriginal culture and that, you know, people shouldn't have to fund that. Um, and then I guess it was just a domino effect from there on. Um, we had... I actually can't even remember how many marches we had, I think, in relation to... I think three or four... Could have been more, but um, yeah, we. I think we had six. Six, oh yeah, God. six, yeah. Yeah, six. Yeah, actually, I do. Actually, six. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we had a great response from everybody here. But people marched all around um, the world for it. It was, you know, that, and that was the response it deserved. Were you surprised by that response? Yeah, yeah. I'd never seen that level of response um, in my lifetime. Uh, but you know, I mean, I've limited. Um, you know, I'm, I'm only just a newbie to any kind of movement. But, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly overwhelmed by that. Um, by that. Um, and I still am, I guess, I think, now. And, and then I also, I, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, what's next? What can we do? There's been, like, a media blackout on it. Um, and they are not communicating, the governments aren't communicating with anybody about what's happening. So that's scary. Um, and... I mean, I guess with any any large campaigning movement, there's always a big um, rush and a big, you know, hoo-ha, and then it's kind of like the, you know, then it's the quiet period about, you know, what next? What, what do we do next? And do I guess we're in that space now. Do you think there... You, you're saying how everything came to the surface very quickly and there was this huge response. Do you think there was just this tipping point of... 
um, of, of, I guess, uh, tension that was just coming and coming because um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there is around 3,207 um, uh, Aboriginal sites that have been dis- um, deregistered by um, yeah. the Columbanet government. Do you think that kind of helped? Look, sp- what's spur- been happening... What's been happening in that state and all around uh, this continent is nothing new. It's whether people are listening and it's the perspective they are given by any given government or media at that time. But it has been consecutive governments that have uh, committed acts of genocide in their, in, their, um, in their forced occupation here. And that was one of them. And that was... A, 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 a notch in the colonizers' belt of genocide towards Aboriginal people, um, and that's always been the case. I don't know what was the difference in people standing up and listening. <coughs> now there seems to be a lot more Aboriginal people who are standing up and um, are a bit more, you know, are, are more willing to fight. Um, I mean, it's been pretty quiet in the nineties, particularly with young people, with people my age. I mean, the older people have always carried on the fight, but. Um, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at the, the Northern Territory intervention, I, I still firmly believe to this day that that, that should have gotten the same reaction. Uh, and maybe it's because the media had no way of packaging that up to Aboriginal disadvantage and to say that that was our fault. I mean, there was absolutely no way that they could lie around themselves around that and that could be contributed to social media and our access to independent media um, and each other. Um, and I, yeah, I think that certainly if it impacts the reaction but um yeah i, I think that yeah thank you mariki you've been uh, amazing thank you for coming on the show uh, that was mariki from the aboriginal uh warriors of the aboriginal resistance thank you mariki no thank have a good you. afternoon no worries guys bye and uh, that is our show for this evening um, this afternoon, uh, I'm getting mixed up with my evening and afternoons. But anyway, um, I'm. You can follow. You can find me on Twitter at Ahmed Yusuf Ten, and I'm sure they can find you, Tanine. Um, at Tanine on Twitter. And Amina, have you found that Twitter, um, that Twitter account yet that you were promising? I think we should make one for the show. That'd be pretty cool. Maybe we. That should. sounds like an idea. I'll work on it. I promise. And uh, remember, you can get in touch with us at the hashtag RaceCard. And um, we're gonna we're gonna say goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thank you. I feel like a minute always says like, thank you for listening. And it feels much more deep than just my bye. But anyway. Yeah, same. So <laughs> true. It sounds like way more sincere. <laughs> thank you for listening, listeners, and continue listening. Bye. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.